wisdom is to fear God, to understand God's ways, and then to apply His ways, as they're explained to us in the Word of God, to life. That's wisdom from a biblical standpoint. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is biblical wisdom? How does God Himself define this term? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 10-part series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven, exploring the topic of wisdom as found in James chapter 3 you'll discover that there are two main presuppositions in this passage. Wisdom is absolutely crucial in the Christian life and experience, and it is ultimately desirable. All believers should long for wisdom. And as you'll see, this is not a peripheral issue for James. Wisdom is at the heart of our faith. Let's join our teacher to find out more now on The Word Unleashed. God chose to reveal His truth in the time period He chose to reveal it. Our job as Bible students is to go back into Bible times, understand through all the tools that are at our disposal what God intended to communicate in that culture, and then when we understand its meaning, we bring it into application into life today. One example of a passage that I think is almost a foreign language to us is the last paragraph of James chapter 3 text to which we come today in our study of this magnificent book. Let me read it for you. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Obviously, the theme of this paragraph is wisdom, particularly two kinds of wisdom. One, we will learn, is the wisdom from heaven. The other is wisdom from hell. James wants us to reflect on a number of points concerning these two opposite kinds of wisdom. He begins his paragraph with a common biblical attention-getting device and one that is popular among good speakers and writers of all kinds, and that is with a rhetorical question. And the question in verse 13 introduces us to the first point that we really need to grasp in order to understand this paragraph. We're really today going to look more at the background. We're going to try to immerse ourselves into the world of James so that we can understand this paragraph in the weeks ahead. The first point that he introduces us here to in this question is this. The categorical priority of godly wisdom. 
the priority, the great importance and priority of godly wisdom. Look at verse 13 again. Who among you is wise and understanding? Before we can unpack the rest of James' comments and the rest of the paragraph, we have to back up for a few minutes and understand the culture, understand the mindset from which these words come. Because for most 21st century Christians, just hearing the word wisdom brings a yawn and an attitude of indifference. But beneath this question lies two huge presuppositions. One of those presuppositions is that wisdom is absolutely crucial in the Christian life and experience. And the second presupposition is that it is ultimately desirable that all of us should long for this skill that's called wisdom. You see, this is not a peripheral issue to James. Wisdom is at the heart of our faith. Now remember that James was raised in a godly Jewish home. He was taught by Joseph until Joseph's death, best we can determine. Joseph died shortly after the visit to the temple when Jesus was 12. It would have then been Jesus' responsibility as the oldest brother, the oldest man now in the family after the death of Joseph, to teach the scriptures to the rest of his family, including this next youngest brother, James. So James' life was absolutely immersed in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. Certainly, our Lord was the perfect teacher. He fulfilled those words in Deuteronomy 6. Speak of the words of God when you get up and when you lie down, when you walk by the way. And so James had a life and a heart that was permeated by an understanding of the Old Testament Scripture. And one of the greatest goals and the highest ideals that is held up in those Scriptures is the attainment of wisdom one of the highest aspirations of the ancient world. It's not a surprise that James himself, because he was so immersed in it, is called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Wisdom literature, as it's often called, has an ancient tradition. In fact, secular wisdom literature goes back 600 years before Abraham. There are existing documents dating to 2700 B.C., but it reached its zenith, this emphasis on wisdom. It reached its apex, its high point, during the life of Solomon in Israel. You remember in 1 Kings 3, Solomon asked God to give him a discerning heart, to give him wisdom, and God was pleased with that request. And he lavished wisdom upon him. Chapter 4 says, gave him breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And no one, God himself says, has ever been as wise as Solomon apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. He was about 20 years old at the time, and God gave him this great wisdom. He took that wisdom then, and Solomon collected for us what we call the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. He wrote three of the five books that we call wisdom literature. He wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. But together, think about it for a moment, there are five books in our Bible specifically devoted to teaching us godly wisdom. And when you survey those books, as I did this week, you find that wisdom makes some amazing promises. We're told that wisdom will confer upon us some amazing things, some amazing benefits. 
For example, wisdom protects and delivers us from all kinds of troubles. Proverbs 2.8 Wisdom helps us master every kind of difficulty that we might face in life. Ecclesiastes 8.5 Wisdom, Proverbs 13.14, rescues us from things that would destroy us. Proverbs 24.3, wisdom achieves lasting results. Ecclesiastes 9.11, wisdom brings success with it. Proverbs 3.35, wisdom bestows honor. It brings blessing, according to Proverbs 12.18. And when you look at the scope of the wisdom literature, and specifically when you look at Proverbs 3, as we'll do in a few moments, you discover that wisdom pleases God. It invites the favor of God on the life of the one who possesses it. That's why you read passages like this in Proverbs 16, 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 3. Listen to how Solomon extols wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. Listen, Solomon was one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest man in the world at that time, so he knew what it was to have wealth, and he knew what it was to have wisdom. He had wisdom more than any other man. And he says, when I compare the two, let me tell you, I have them both, and if I had to give up one, there's not even a question. I'd give up the wealth. In fact, he says there in verse 15, nothing you desire. Think for a moment about the one thing you would ask God if he gave you a chance to fulfill one request. Solomon says, if you would ask for anything but wisdom, then you're dead wrong. Nothing you desire compares with her. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. But without question, the highest praise that Solomon gives to this virtue of wisdom is in chapter 8. Turn over just a few pages to Proverbs chapter 8. Here is the highest praise of godly wisdom. This entire chapter is an ode to wisdom. In verses 1 through 5, Solomon lays out the reality that wisdom is for everyone. He says, listen, it's in the marketplace, verses 2 and 3. She calls out, verse 4, to, to all men. He personifies wisdom here, and he says, Wisdom says, my voice is to the sons of men. And it doesn't matter where you find yourself, even if you are the most naive. Naive, the Hebrew word literally means wide open. It means you are swayed by the latest person or idea to come along. If you're wide open, you can understand prudence. If you're a fool, then you can still understand me and understand wisdom. In verses 6 through 13, Solomon tells us, as he personifies wisdom, that wisdom produces right conduct, that wisdom and godliness are synonyms. In verses 14 to 21, he explains that wisdom is the key to all success in life. Look at verse 14. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. 
I am understanding, power is mine. By me, wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. He's not talking just about the sort of health, wealth, prosperity gospel here. He's saying, I'm talking about enduring wealth, even the wealth that is righteousness. Verse 19, my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than the choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. And he's just talked about righteousness. Again, the point here is not physical wealth, although that sometimes comes with wisdom as well, but not always. The point is there is a wealth of godliness. In verse 22 down through verse 31, he reminds us that wisdom was the key principle behind the act of creation. When God created, he used wisdom. And if God needed wisdom to create the world, then we need wisdom to live in his world. And then he comes in verse 32 to the climax of the entire chapter. Here he tells us that wisdom is the most important thing in all of life, and he calls us to a decision. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise, and don't neglect it. Pursue wisdom. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost, eager to get wisdom. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love their own death. Solomon says, I want you to understand the priority of love. There's not a single thing in life that you should desire more than wisdom. You say, well, that's fine for Solomon. That's fine for the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Does it ring the same call to pursue wisdom? Absolutely. We're, we open the New Testament being told in Luke 2.52 that Jesus, as he grew... One of the most important things to understand about him as a human being was that he increased in wisdom. You come to Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Even those who were called upon to serve tables, to serve the widows in the church in Jerusalem, were required to be full of wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, verse 10, Stephen spoke to the scribes and Pharisees and were told that they were unable to refute the wisdom of with which he spoke. You see, wisdom is required to serve God in the most menial task, and wisdom is required to handle God's Word and speak it accurately. In Romans 16, verse 19, Paul says, I want you to be wise in all that's good. This is to all of us as believers. We are to be wise. We're to have wisdom in everything that's good and right and holy. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man, and we do this ministry with all wisdom. Again, stressing the fact that a teaching ministry requires the wisdom of God. But turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me show you Paul's application of this on a wider front. Ephesians chapter 5, he's just been speaking about the fact that we're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. We're not to be living like the people around us live. 
Verse 15, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk. In biblical language, your walk describes your pattern of behavior, how you act, your lifestyle. He says, be extra careful how you live, what your lifestyle looks like. And how is it that we should walk? Not as unwise men, but as wise. He says, your walk as a Christian, your lifestyle, your behavior, the things that characterize you should be characterized by wisdom. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. Wisdom is absolutely essential, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. Now let me ask you, is wisdom this kind of priority to you? Is this how you think of wisdom? Do you consider wisdom to be better than all earthly wealth, than gold and silver and precious stones? Now for a moment, forget you're in church and that the right answer here is yes, and ask yourself, really, truly, do you consider wisdom to be more important than success in your job, than the accumulation of wealth here? If you had to choose between truly being wealthy here and having wisdom, which would you choose? Solomon says, I've had both. And let me tell you, there's nothing you desire that can compare with wisdom. Is this a categorical priority to you? Is this the great priority of your life as it obviously is to God? Do you really understand that nothing in life is more important than godly wisdom? Now that raises an obvious and important question. What exactly is this wisdom? So let's examine together a second issue that we need to understand to get the background here. Not only the categorical priority of godly wisdom, but the biblical definition of godly wisdom. Back in James chapter 3, verse 13, James introduces us to the definition by the words that he uses. Who is wise and understanding? The word wise is a word from which we get the name Sophia. You recognize that. If, you've, if you know any Greek words at all, you understand that Sophia was the classical Greek word for wisdom. The Greeks loved and pursued Sophia. In fact, Socrates, the greatest of the Greek philosophers, at least felt that by many, he lived and died, actually died in about 400 B.C., and Socrates said, don't call me Sophia. Don't say that I have Sophia. Don't call me Sophros, because that would be blasphemous. Instead, simply call me a lover of Sophia, pursuing Sophia. They loved it. They loved wisdom, and they passed along that love of wisdom to us. You understand this. If you've ever been to college... You remember the course or two that you took in college in philosophy. Well, our English word philosophy is actually a compound Greek word. It's made up of the word phileo, to love, and sophia, wisdom. Philosophy simply means a love of wisdom. And our culture is still dramatically influenced by the mindset of Greek wisdom. And we benefit from that as a culture. And yet, as believers, listen carefully, it is a serious problem. Because Greek wisdom and biblical or Hebrew wisdom are vastly different. 
Let me give you a few points of comparison. Greek wisdom is man-centered. Man is the ideal, and he should grow up into this almost God himself. In Hebrew mindset, wisdom is God-centered. True wisdom centers on God. In the Greek mind, wisdom is an academic kind of knowledge. In the Hebrew mind, it is a practical ability or skill. Greek wisdom affects primarily your mind. Hebrew wisdom affects your entire being. Greek wisdom may produce absolutely no change in your life whatsoever. You can be wise in the Greek sense and still be unaffected in your life by it. Hebrew wisdom, on the other hand, will show itself, will always display itself in your behavior, in your conduct. Now, much of Western education is based on the Greek model of wisdom. What matters most, what's most important, is what you know, what you're an expert in, not necessarily what you yourself do with that knowledge. One of the most graphic illustrations I've seen of this recently was several months ago I read an article by a doctor who's a specialist in the care of the heart. And he made some good points. He was asked, you know, how it was that we should care for our hearts. And I was interested in that because there's a, a history of heart disease that runs in my family. And he made some good points, some you would expect, nothing really new in the article. For example, one of the leading issues was exercise. But then the reporter, unlike most interviewers, the reporter asked him about his own habits. And the doctor had to admit that he was just too busy to exercise and that he didn't, which was a boon to some of us. Yet, this man was being quoted as an expert. Why? Because of his academic knowledge. He understands the field and how it functions. But biblical or Hebrew wisdom isn't merely an accumulation of facts. It is the application of what you know to real life. So you can see why it's crucial that as we frame a definition, we build it from the Bible and not from the mindset that we come to the Bible with. Where do we start to build a definition of wisdom? Well, let's start with God, which is where the Old Testament starts. It's clear that whatever our wisdom is, it is simply a reflection of something that is most true of God. God is wise. God has true wisdom. H.B. Smith defined God's wisdom this way. I love this. Wisdom is that attribute of God whereby he produces the best possible results with the best possible means. The reason I like that is we often think of God as trying to produce the best possible results in our lives, right? Where the problem comes is really believing that the path he's taking us down to get to that result is really the best. But the fact that God is wise means that both the ends he has in mind and the means he's using to get us there, however difficult they may be, are his best. We see God's wisdom displayed on several stages in Scripture. We see His wisdom displayed on the stage of creation. Psalm 104, verse 24, O Lord, how many are your works! In wisdom you made them all. God's wisdom is displayed wherever you look in His creation. God's wisdom is also displayed on the stage of 
salvation, of redemption. After Paul unfolds the great doctrines of salvation in Romans 1 through 11, those magnificent chapters that I'm tempted to study after we finish James, after he completes that study, he comes at the end of Romans 11 to these magnificent words, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God put himself and his wisdom on display in salvation. Only God could have come up with the plan that we read of in the New Testament. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Tom will bring you part two on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.